Hi, everybody. This is Tony Khan, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston, which is uh, actually about to move. For real, after decades in the same location, we're going to be moving to a brand new building, which has been under construction. It's very exciting. But it also means that it's box season, cardboard box season, miles and miles of cardboard boxes, boxes for things uh, to throw away, boxes for things you want to keep, boxes full of things you're surprised you ever held on to, boxes full of things that still, no matter how hard you try, won't let go of you. Well, a few days ago, one of our neighboring producers came by and he dropped something on my desk that he'd found in the bottom of one of his cardboard boxes that belonged to me. It was a story that I'd produced back in 1997 when I was hosting a show called The World. A story about a remarkable man named Aaron Lansky, who had found something in a box that changed the course of his life and even, you could say, the literature of an entire nation. Well, it seemed like the perfect morning story for a time of transition when it is so hard to know what to keep and what to throw away. We call today's morning story... Play the music already. Look at all the, the boxes piled up. Everything from a jet puffed marshmallows to liquor to Office Depot, and all of them filled with Yiddish books from everywhere, from South Africa and from uh, Argentina. A thousand books arrive at the National Yiddish Book Center every week from basements, attics, and dumpsters around the world. This was something called the Algemeine Encyclopedia, begun in Paris in 1937. Um, this book was published in, uh, you can see, on 175 East Broadway in New York in 1918. Spend a little time with Aaron Lansky, the center's director, and you get the feeling he loves each volume equally, not just for its deathless prose, but for its individual powers of survival. You want to tell you a great story? One night I find a pile of books, and among them I find this one very thick volume, about a thousand pages. And it was a dictionary of a foreign and political terminology in Yiddish, published in Kiev in 1929. Well, that's a very important book because it tells you how Jews are viewing the world at that time. It's really significant. And after several hours, I find it written. The NKVD, the predecessor of the KGB, confiscated all copies at the publishing house and none survived. And here I am holding this book in my hand. I start trembling. My heart's thump, thump, thump. I don't know what to do first. I thought maybe I should run downstairs and turn on the burglar alarm. Well, what a find this was. Sure enough, a woman called up. Her father had been a cousin of the author of this book. He traveled to visit his cousin, and he was there as these books were coming off the line. And he took, the cousin said, here, take one, take one home with you. Just hours later, the K NKVD came in and confiscated all the remaining copies and burned everything. You don't have to go to Russia to save a Yiddish book. There are plenty of them in trouble around the corner. Once, Aaron got a call in the middle of the night. A dumpster on 16th Street in New York City was hemorrhaging Yiddish books. They had been in the library of a Jewish organization that had gone bankrupt and sold its building for co-op apartments. The workers had already hauled 7,000 volumes to the trash. If the books hadn't started spilling into the street, no one would have ever known. Sure enough, this dumpster was just overflowing with really priceless Yiddish books of all sorts. And we spent the rest of that day in pouring rain and sleet hauling these books out of the dumpster. 
By the end of that day, we had saved about 5,000 books, and I'm afraid about 3,000 were damaged beyond repair. Lansky has the energy of a man racing against time. Like most American Jews of his generation, he grew up in a home where Yiddish was something you kept from the children. When he was old enough to study it in school in Canada, it was almost too late. We couldn't find the books we needed for our classes. Grandparents would die. They would leave amazing libraries behind. But the kids couldn't read the books, or the grandchildren certainly couldn't read them. They really didn't have a clue what they were. Books were literally ending up in the trash. So I decided to take a two-year leave of absence to rescue the world's Yiddish books while there was still time. It's now 18 years later. We've collected about 1.4 million volumes and are still going strong, and I'm still on leave from graduate school. So am I. If graduate school had been like this place, I never would have left. Set on 10 acres of an old apple orchard in western Massachusetts, the center looks like a cluster of Jewish dwellings from Minsk. Statal rooftops rise and merge into a single skylight, spilling sunshine on the books and the people who come from around the world to see them, and the exhibits on Yiddish history and culture. But the center is also a cemetery. Yiddish thrived for a thousand years and then was nearly wiped out in 20. These books aren't just treasure chests of a culture. They're its tombstones. Over half of the native speakers of Yiddish fell to the Nazis in World War II, and Stalin picked up where Hitler left off. Not long ago, when the Soviet Union was breaking up, Aaron went to Eastern Europe to bring some of his books back home, to the children and the grandchildren of the book's earliest readers. It wasn't much of a reunion. Uh, I remember at one point we were in a little uh, community, and I'm looking around, and I said, my God, it looks just like a shtetl here. I mean, you know, there are still thatched roof houses, goats tethered in the yards, and there were women washing clothes down by the river. I mean, like nothing had changed. And uh, we were with some two kind of tough guys from Vilna they had sent up. He says, it was a shtetl. He says, this was Vilkomir, a very well-known Jewish city, a Jewish town before the war. Well, all the Jews, all 10,000 Jews of Vilkomir were murdered by the Nazis, all, all, all in one day, actually. They were brought to the edge of the town and murdered. And at the edge of the town, we find the old Jewish cemetery, except it was just a big open field with a kid's ball field at one end of it. And in the whole field, there was one Jewish gravestone left. And even that had been put up by Jews from Vilna just a few months before. And they said, do you want to know where those mitzvahs, where those Jewish tombstones went? We said, yeah. And they took us to a large government building called the Palace of Trade Unions. There's a huge, grand, you know, kind of ceremonial staircase going up to this building. And as we look closely at the uh, rocks, the stones making the staircase, we realized it was built out of Jewish tombstones. You could still see the Hebrew writing on them. I have to tell you, out of uh, six weeks of grueling travel in the Soviet Union, that was the most devastating moment. I thought to myself, it's like this. A tree grows in the forest, a mighty oak with outspread branches, and an ignorant lout comes along with an axe and chops off a branch, and then another and another. What is a tree without branches, alas? Go ahead, lout, chop down the whole tree and let there be an end. What good is a naked oak in the forest? Here was a whole civilization, a thousand years of Jewish life in Europe. Jews living on the outside like that developed a profound sense of social justice, a commitment to human decency, to peace. Unless you had a decent world, Jews were going to be the first to get it, and they knew that. And therefore, the language just insists upon a kind of decency in everyday life. And of course, the literature is full of it. 
Look at me. I wanted to be clever and tried everything I knew. And then when I saw it was no use, I took my hand off my chest and said to myself, Tevye, you're a fool. There is no wound so deep that it does not heal in time. There is no sorrow so great that you do not forget it eventually. That is, you do not forget, but what can you do about it? Man must work, man must till the earth in the sweat of his brow. And so we all went to work. My wife and children got busy with the pitchers of milk, and I took to my horse and wagon, and the world continued in its course. The great literatures in world history are the literatures of outsider sensibility of all sorts. I mean, if you're comfortable, you don't have to write literature. You don't need to write novels. You can sit at home and have nothing to worry about. It's those who are on the outside in all sorts of ways who begin to write our great literature for us. It's hard to share Lansky's faith in the future. Throughout history, cultural extinction has been the rule. For every book here, there are probably a thousand from long-dead cultures that were never found. Besides, things are okay now in America. Why be reminded of all the times and the places when things weren't? We can belong now. I mean, America said, welcome aboard, and there's no reason for us to stay separate. Is the day of Yiddish over, however? As a culture, definitely not. How in the world can you take a millennium of Jewish experience, throw it out the door, and still expect to know who you are? How can you take one of the most extraordinary literatures, throw it away, and expect to have some sense of continuity? Lansky got a MacArthur Foundation so-called Genius Fellowship in 1989 for his 18 years of work saving Yiddish books. And maybe he knows something we don't. Like they say, a wise man hears one word and understands two. One thing you've got to say for him, he does have good timing. If he'd started 10 years earlier with this project, there'd have been no support. If he'd started 10 years later, there'd have been no books. And without good timing... You can't have an ear for the music. Think about if you had a, a great musical composer, right, who's walking down the street, suddenly is uh, mugged and stabbed, and the guy's killed. And, well, how would you commemorate that composer? Would you keep building more and more and more statues of the mugging? Or at some point, would you begin playing the music? What we're doing here is trying to play the music already. Yes, we must mourn. Yes, there are times for that. But there are also times to contend with the culture in a real way. These were real people living real lives. They weren't all that different from us. Uh, and they created something amazing. And it's up to us to figure out what that was and figure out what we can do with it to then strengthen our own lives. Today's morning story from Aaron Lansky, Play the Music Already. That's it for this week. Be sure to stay with us. We are zeroing in very quickly on our second anniversary and our 100th podcast. So there's a lot in store for you for morning stories, and a lot of it's going to be coming from you. Your email, stories from your own lives, morningstories at wgbh.org. You can also find us and a lot of our stories ready for download at our website, wgbh.org slash morning stories so don't forget to check in there too oh and one more word before we close ipswich 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 our funder for almost two years and we hope that's only the beginning ipswich a leader in file transfer software check out their website at ipswich.com i-p-s-w-i-t-c-h <laughs> 
and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. I met a kill a hurry up. Ain't a life in business, ain't a life.